Good afternoon and welcome to the 10th episode of the Half Hour Call podcast, hosted by me, Harry Sutherland. Please be aware this podcast may contain strong language. Going forward in this series of interviews, I'll be talking to professionals across the industry who will give us their stories and also an insight into the arts industry today. Very few people can be a director. It takes a certain mindset, a certain way of thinking and a certain level of craziness. Above all that, it takes humility. Franny Ann Rafferty has an abundance. She is one of the most caring and kind people I know, and it reflects in her work. Since graduating a Central School of Speech and Drama, Fran has worked prolifically for theatre. In 2017, she was the recipient of the McFutures Assistant Director Award. Fran worked as a producer on Bugsy Malone at the Lyric Hammersmith, and then took two musicals out on tour as Associate Director, Titanic the Musical and Spamalot. Recently, Fran directed a West End Christmas at the Cadogan Hall. Six the Musical made such a splash in London when it opened, and when it needed an associate director, there was one person for the job. Fran continues to work on Six and takes it out on tour whilst writing a brand new piece of theatre called Reclamation and also working on Vanyas. Good afternoon, Franny Ann Rafferty. How are you doing? Uh, oh, Harry, your little introduction. <laughs> Is it okay enough? <laughs> It was great. I should just say, um, although it sounds like uh, McDonald's sponsored me, it's MGC Futures, which is the Michael Grandage company. <laughs> That's a massive error already. <laughs> it's not. I, I thought it was completely delightful. The Muck Futures. <laughs> I take it. If, McDonald if McDonald's could start sponsoring creatives and artists, I'd absolutely whip that away. I'm um, so sorry. <laughs> you said it, you said it before. You were like, just tell me if something goes a bit awry in the intro. And I should also, full credit, there are two associate directors on six. Um, two, oh, okay. which is me and another associate director called Grace Taylor. Uh, and we both work incredibly hard on all of the very many productions of six that grace this world. I'm so sorry, Fran. No, don't apologise. It's good for me to... What a way into the podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> Fucked up first minute in. <laughs> <laughs> no! But really, McDonald's, if you fancy sponsoring some artists... Go for it. Yeah, I mean, McFutures... Like they haven't got the money, right? <laughs> yeah. And also, I buy a lot of McDonald's, so really, I've, I've already invested in a big way. And I think if you win it, they'll then call maybe the new burger the McFran burger. Oh, my goodness. I would... I would just joyfully have the McFranny <laughs> like every Sunday and it would definitely be it'd be like a bunless burger mm. maybe with additional bacon wait so wait so we'll, we'll slow down if there's no bun then what how how are you holding it you're just holding two packs lettuce oh <laughs> The lettuce is <laughs> Yeah, this is where McDonald's is going to like step out of its comfort zone. It's actually going to add proper lettuce leaves. As opposed to what? As opposed to a bun. Or like they have strips of lettuce, but it is like they've just filtered it through a big hedge and then put it in a burger. So <laughs> in the McFranny, they've got full leaves. <laughs> I'm actually crying. <laughs> <laughs> You're know. welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm crying more of how much I screwed up your intro or how amazing <laughs> You didn't screw up the intro. It was so lovely and delightful. It was very moving, actually. Um, I felt like you weren't describing me. I, I was like, oh, 
who is this person he's talking of? But then you said the word crazy and I was like, yeah, he's, he's nailed it. He's nailed it. He's got a, hit the nail on the head with that one. And as your mug would say, you're over it. <laughs> I love this mug, but I do feel it's aggressive sometimes, isn't it? No, I love it. I love it. You've got a bit of honesty sometimes. I love it. Over it. But it's over it as in over the rainbow. See? Oh, I thought it's it meant like I'm over it, like as in I don't care anymore. Yeah, I think it's meant to be that as well. But I also like the fact that it's like over the rainbow. Mm. Love over it. it. The rainbow. <laughs> okay, we should. Come on. It's let's, a double let's meaning. Do this. Let's, <laughs> let's go for it. Can we kick off today with some quick fire questions? I love a quick fire question. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> I get them in everyday life. That's just the thing I live with. <laughs> Seriously. So oh, come on, Harry. Right. <laughs> Tea or coffee? Tea. What oh pick? no, latte. Oh damn. Oh, oh well, that's a good uh, start, isn't it? Come on, Fran. Fuck's sake. Let's start again. Let's start again. Tea or coffee? Yes. <laughs> but, it's, it's one of this one or the other. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'm drinking tea now. Tea. Tea. Okay, tea. What couldn't you live without? Music or literature? Music. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Jez Butterworth or Sarah Kane? Sarah Kane. Play or musical? Can I have a play with music? <laughs> well, then technically it's a play then, isn't it? Damn it. <laughs> Saw through my wily ways. <laughs> what are we saying? Musicals. Play with music. Play. Play with music. Musicals. Well, you said every, other, every possible answer. <laughs> I need one answer. Musical plays. <laughs> okay. You're not getting a better answer from me. Okay, we'll just, we'll just go there then. Classic yes. or modern? Classic done modern. Oh, come on, right. Me and you're uh... going to fall out, man. Me and you're going to fall out. <laughs> <laughs> it's either classic or modern. Modern. Summer or winter? Summer. Pre-show coffee or post-show drink? post-show drink do you dunk a biscuit yeah <laughs> also last one what is a tea cake uh, a tunnock's tea cake from that there edinburgh of scotland with Keep marshmallow going. on top of a little biscuit covered in chocolate <laughs> do you know what i could kiss you right now because you're the <laughs> first person that knows what i'm talking about the lady i interviewed before you was a lady called carolyn and she'd never heard of this she never thought heard of tea cake. Cake. she'd never heard of it. She thought it was like a, a, a bread thing you cut in half and put but I said, no, that's a scone, that's not a tea cake, it's a marshmallow thing, isn't it? Oh, but that, no, you see, I can see where the confusion is because um I think you're thinking of scone, but I know what she's thinking of, which is like a bun, which is uh, they're also sort of called tea cakes, which is like um like a Chelsea bun, but a hot cross bun is when it's not Easter, they they can also be called tea cakes. Those are called hot cross buns, though, aren't they? Yeah, but only really at Easter, because the rest of the time it doesn't make sense that they're called hot cross buns. We just call them a hot bun, then. <laughs> yes, in some parts of England, I'm sure they do. <laughs> okay, right. Because... <laughs> but in others, especially in um, tea shops, a tea cake, a toasted tea cake would be a hot cross bun cut in half, toasted, and then buttered. Toasted tea cake. However, I'm with you. A tea cake is a tunnet's tea cake. Marshmallow yeah. on a biscuit. 
covered in chocolate. Yeah, right. But no one's ever heard of this thing. Well, it, I think if you tour, and I'm gonna ha- I'm I'm gonna throw it out there. I think it's also a pretty working class thing as well because tea cakes are pretty special. <laughs> it's like a treat, and it is. It would have been like the chocolate chocolate covered marshmallow on a biscuit. That's a real that's a real cheap treat. So only really the elitists eat a tonics tea cake. What? What? Yeah, you could reverse it like that. Yeah, let's say yeah. <laughs> Not, oh, okay, okay, so done. Not as an elitist in class, but if you're an elite person. If you're an elite working class person, you know what a tonic tea cake is. Yeah. Banging. <laughs> <laughs> so, Fran, for all the people out here who will be listening to this, do you want to explain how we know each other? Mm. We had the divine pleasure of working on box office together. <laughs> <laughs> In the hottest summer ever, ever. The recorded. hottest summer ever. Well, technically, I think we know each other via our very good mutual friend, Alice Harvey. Oh, yeah. Oh, of course. I don't know how I could not say that. Initially, because you guys were touring together. Mm. And I can only describe your relationship as being a brother and sister, but where Alice is the older sister. Oh, well, well, I wouldn't be the older sister, would I? Well, no, but you could have been the older brother. No, it's definitely not that way. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely not that. Um, so we sort of were first introduced to each other via Alice. And then you came and started working on box office. Um, and so we shared many a shift in a long, hot summer mm. at the Arts Theatre, uh, Greater Newport Street. I love the little address on the end. Do you remember the postcode? We had to say it enough times. WC2H7HJ. Bosh, she's got it. I think. That sounds right. Or was it WC2A? Might be that instead. <laughs> no, the first, the first one sounds right, I think. I don't anyone know. wants to send any posts to me and Harry, you can, <laughs> you can do it via that address. I'm sure the arts will be thrilled. Neither of us work there anymore. They love being a post box for our fan mail. I mean, the amount of times that I had to put that a day in an email, and to this day, oh, I mate. can't remember the postcode. Not even the phone number. I can't remember the, post, not the phone number. Did you used to do work? I thought you just sat there with a fan. <laughs> <laughs> mourning the heat that we were having to deal with <laughs> it was hot man that was a really hot summer mm. but um so that's that's what you know this is the first time we've probably spoken since so this you know we're just going to remind ourselves that we're back at the arts we're sitting behind a desk on really uncomfortable squeaky chairs wait no the last time we saw each other was when we went to see um grandpa's escape <gasps> That is, that's Wasn't really it? embarrassing. What, what was it called? Great, it was Grandpa's, Grandpa's Great Escape. Great Escape. Yes, yes, yes. At the SSC Arena in Wembley. In Wembley, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really embarrassing that I forgot that. That is quite embarrassing because I thought that was a memorable time, but clearly but what, you didn't. Well, no, because you left Never early mind. and the rest of us stayed and got pissed. What? So, so what, I get wiped from the memory? This is outrageous. <laughs> we even went into a photo booth, you horror. Oh, we did, we did. Yeah. And then... And then, but we got free drinks because we took an Instagram picture with the Box Park logo because it said if you that's take how social media around. works. Yeah, right. That's the, <laughs> that's the benefit. <laughs> right. I'd love to sit and talk about seeing your day, but I want to talk about you and your life and career, if that's okay. Uh, you are most welcome to, as as short as it is. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Can you tell us where you grew up from? Uh, yeah, I grew up in the Midlands. I was actually born in Reading. Okay. Uh, me, Kate Winslet, and Ricky Gervais. That's like the holy trinity of greatness, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but I was born the same day as Kate Winslet, so we're basically related. Wow. Same area born, same day, although 
a few years apart. Um, I see no difference. Yes, I am very Kate Winslet, aren't I? Except the hair especially. I, the hair, uh, I just don't have any of the, the money or fame. Um, <laughs> so, and then uh, my mum moved us up to the Midlands, which is where my grandparents were living. And I grew up, I was really lucky actually, because um, I think all the places that I grew up in were kind of transformative in lots of brilliant not always hugely positive ways, but in really marked ways, which was great. So I grew up in the Midlands um, and then moved down to London in 2006. Wow. Well, do, you remember your, do you remember your first ever experience at the theatre then? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, Leicester Haymarket, Stig of the Dump. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the actor playing Stig... Um, downed a tube of do you remember those sherbet fountains i think you can still get them but they're not quite as um uh lacking in robustness as i think they used to be so now they're like made from a plastic tube and it's like got a screw cap on it and everything back in those days it was like a cardboard tube with just paper willfully holding in the sherbet and then a big stick of licorice sort of sticking out the top that you i imagine anybody could just go along and lick uh, it wasn't covered in any way, shape or form. Um, anyway, so Stig um, downed a tube of sherbet and I just remember him uh, coughing, but like a fountain of sherbet across the audience <laughs> and just being so, I think I was like, I want to say I was about seven mm -hmm. and I was just so completely like delighted in the image, in the story, in the everything of it. I was like, you can do that in theatre? You can down a tube of sherbet and then spit it across the audience? <laughs> Sign me up immediately. That looks hilarious. COVID times, you can never do that now. Right. Um, well, probably even before COVID times, I think they probably would have frowned quite frantically at <laughs> you spitting sherbet <laughs> across an audience. Um, but I, yeah, that was my first... That was my first ever theatre. Uh, and that was because our school did a yearly theatre trip. Oh, okay. And that was, the, that was how I got to experience theatre for the first time, was because of school. And was there you, you always interested in, in the idea of theatre or becoming an actress, maybe, or, or directing at that age? I was just always, like, I could always talk, if that kind of makes sense. It's like I wasn't especially loud and gregarious, but I was always sort of articulate, which meant I was like a gift for bullies because I was just like this weird uh, buck teethed boff. <laughs> they just hated because because I could talk. Um, and Mrs. Rattray uh, at my primary school, she held auditions for the Christmas show. And the audition was you had to face, um, she had like this long classroom and you had to face one wall and say the paragraph from the audition piece. And if she, she could still hear you while she was sat at her desk, then you got in the show. So that was my audition. And I got, uh, I was the narrator. So I had to oh, wear wow. a waistcoat and everything. I was thrilled, was absolutely thrilled. Then, was it? Well, it was like a version of the nativity. I, I remember there being all sorts of characters in there that I was like, I'm certain this wasn't mentioned at Sunday school. <laughs> Well, like a fox, like, in the, <laughs> a fox in the stables. <laughs> this is the thing. It's like the variation of animals who were around, the, the people who were at the inn before Mary and Joseph rocked up. It's like, I don't remember any of these from Sunday school, but <laughs> here I am telling the audience about them. 
um yeah I just and I loved I think I loved that feeling of preparing and rehearsing and still to this day I think there's something really um really exciting about knowing a script off by heart if that kind of makes sense it's like when you hit the marks and when you when you know you said the words all really accurately and with intention and stuff like that it's like oh it's like makes you giddy almost Mm. and excited um and still to this day in like rehearsal uh I'm now to the point where I I can sort of do a one-woman version of six Really? <laughs> yeah. I, would, I would love to see that I think you know with social distance audiences why can't we have a, a one person six well exactly uh that would be a way of making some money wouldn't it and um, yeah. but again it it feels it feels like you've worked for it so yeah hmm. that was that um so when did you start to hear about central then when was that on your radar were you were you still like performing growing up and stuff or yeah, so we were really lucky. The The town where I sort of grew up in my teenage years is Hinkley, Leicestershire. And we have a local theatre, beautiful 300, 400-seater Proscenium March Theatre that used to be an old textiles factory. And then some mad good philanthropists uh, in like, I think it was the 60s, 50s or 60s, converted it into a theatre and then it was run by volunteers. And so it had like this old school counterweight fly gantry, um it had an orchestra pit you know it was like a proper proper theater Mm. and I my granddad used to volunteer there as an usher and then I got involved in the youth theater and it just became this incredible sort of theater education in every possible area of theater so there I learned how to follow spot I learned how to fly the gantry I learned how to uh do the book in the corner dsm um I directed, I assistant directed, I performed, um, did costumes. I, wow. A couple of years, I did the the billboard for outside, painted that, painted a few sets. It's like it offered you the opportunity to literally dip your toe in every area of theatre that you wanted to dip your toe in. And then that became a really great way of going, oh, this is the bit I really love. And that was when I sort of fell in love with directing. Um, and I directed a couple of youth theatre shows like The Little Princess and Honk and stuff like that. Uh, Tim Pan Alley, classic. Uh, <laughs> assisting on them as well. Um, and then I remember in, so I did sixth form for like half a year. It really didn't work out for me. It sort of, it worked for what uh, outside life sort of needed that I just stay at the same college after my GCSEs, do sixth form. But for me, from what I wanted from life, it was not working. I really wanted to go and do performing arts. I wanted to be acting. I wanted to be making theatre. So I went and did a BTEC at uh, Melton Mowbray, which was like the compromise. And then at Melton Mowbray was the first time I heard about Central and was like, that's where I want to go. That's that's my school. Mm. I want to be there. Um, but various reasons just didn't work out that way. And I spent uh, quite a bit of time sort of going the long route round into creating theatre. So I did a degree in arts management in, at Leicester de Montfort and then sort of went into venue management and then worked my way around through to production management, um, production coordination rather, rather than the management. No good in steely is me, uh, <laughs> but quite good at a desk. Um, and then after basically putting myself in a more stably 
stable financial place. I applied to Central and was incredibly lucky, got some sponsorship from amazing people who have supported me in my life uh, and then went and did my MA. So what, what, what did you do? The, what did you do at Central? What was the course? Was it, state, was it directing or what was it? Advanced theatre practice, a master's in advanced theatre practice. So I can practice theatre advancedly. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you, we, another mutual friend we have, you went there with Douglas Baker. So, well, Doug was the year after me. Oh, was he? Okay. Yeah, or two years after me or something like that. Because he, we met up and he was like, what's this course that you're doing? It looks interesting. And I think it's the thing I want to be doing. Uh, and I was like, well, I love it. I don't want to say you're going to love it, but I think it will be the reset that you want. And I think that's the good thing about the course is that it's a really ideal way of pressing the reset button. So just the two years prior to going and doing my MA, I was a producer at Lyric Hammersmith. And that was intense and that was producing Bugsy Malone after the big capital build it was producing the Pantos it was producing Herons which was a huge show um flooding a stage you know all that kind of stuff uh and so to go and do the MA was like pressing reset on the this is no longer your concern if the budget matches up it's no longer your concern the logistics and hiring rooms and all that kind of stuff uh, and doing contracts what is your concern is the rigor of the art that you're making um and so creative yeah completely that and it sort of reminds you how to use your creative muscles rather than your logistic kind of uh, organizational muscles which have had a really good workout and are still really helpful and I don't think I would be I don't think I would have would be in the position that I'm in now if I didn't have all of those muscles working. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but that year at Central was the the chance to go, but this is what I really love doing. And actually, this is what I'm really good at. So can I rewind then? I didn't know that was the order then. So was it Central, then Lyric Hammersmith, or was it the other way around? Other way around. Oh, so, I've done research really poor today, haven't I? You haven't. Stop <laughs> it. So I, well, the full pattern of it, So I did my arts management degree and I went and uh, was a theatre manager in Birmingham for about a year. And then I came down to London and I was the youngest female theatre manager in the West End. So I was managing the Lyric on Shaftesbury Avenue, which Lyric, the word Lyric becomes like, it's almost like my life. (laughs) It's just attached to the word Lyric. Um, Lyric Lyric Shaftesbury Avenue, which was incredible. There is nothing... Uh, and I was young at that point as well and being introduced to that world where your life starts each day around 2 p.m and doesn't finish until 3 a.m is the most extraordinary education on what exists beyond that that you thought you already knew Mm -hmm. um and so many uh very debauched nights at uh shuts which is now known as the Phoenix Artist Club. Mm-hmm. But at that time, it was still called the Phoenix Artist Club, but everybody just called it shirts because there's like this old lineage of people who've been going there for decades and decades and decades. It just gets passed down. So what, what, what uh, were you doing at the Lyric then? What, what were you actually doing? What was your involvement there? At the Shaftesbury Avenue, I was the theatre manager. So, 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 what, so what does that... I managed it. I'm a four-year-old. What does that... 
<laughs> if you're talking, if you were talking to an alien right now, how would you describe it? So that, <laughs> so that is you're managing the building, you're managing the productions within it. If that kind of so the relationship between the building and the production that's sitting within it. Um, so you're managing all of the staff, the front of house, backstage. Um, although I'd argue the backstage managed me <laughs> in a really good way. Because they were much more experienced. And so they, I was really fortunate, actually, that the backstage team at the Lyric Shaftesbury Avenue, it felt like they just took me under their wing mm -hmm. and were like, we can, we can see that you're good for this place and we're going we're gonna to keep working together. And it was a team. And still to this day, I go and visit and I see them, not very regularly because of COVID times, um, but it's just like going home each time in a way. And that was my first London home. I basically lived in that building when I first moved to London. So what shows um, did you work on then while, while you were there? Uh, Cabaret was there, Rufus Norris's original Cabaret. Wow. So when Anna Maxwell Martin, Sheila Hancock, uh, rest in peace, Jeffrey Hutchins was, there, uh, was in that cast. Um, Harriet Thorpe. Wow. It was, it was an incredible cast and mm. then Oh, and uh, Kaiser Hameland was um, part of the ensemble and was the, an amazing cover for Sally Bowles and Anna Maxwell Martin was playing Sally Bowles. So it was like, but also for me, it was this incredible privilege of watching what Rufus Norris has created on stage. And his version of Cabaret was dark, seedy, difficult, um, confrontational, just brilliant. I, I was just blown away by it. And I got to watch that every night, effectively, in between dealing with drunken patrons shagging or puking in the dress circle. <laughs> I mean, what, what would you rather do, right? <laughs> well, exactly. Do come to the theatre half-cooked so you can puke in the theatre, won't you? <laughs> so what, um, what was the progression then from, from there to the Lyric Hammersmith? What was the progression there? Yeah, so, well, from the Lyric Shaftesbury Avenue, I... Uh, left for a short period and went and worked at Comic Relief. Really? Is, I never knew again. you worked at Comic Relief. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I was a facilities coordinator. And again, that's a massive education on what is essentially a hugely commercial charity operating. Um, and they do such incredible work. But at the same time, they are just such a massive entity. Yeah. Like, it's huge, that operation. Um and what they achieve because of it is phenomenal. Mm. Um, so I was there for a short period of time and then I went back into theatre management and I was a, a duty manager for all the playhouses. So oh, okay. every night I'd be in a different, like one night I'd be at the Apollo, the next night I'd be at the Duchess and then another night it'd be the Garrick or the Vaudeville. Wow. Um, which again, you just get to know all of these incredible playhouses, but you also get to see all those crazy shows. Um, mm. James McAvoy in Three Days of Rain. Oh, lovely. Like, incredible. Um, just meeting incredible people as well. As and while, I... while you were doing this, were you always with the intention at the back of your mind about still going into directing and those creative muscles? Or was this just kind of, a, I'm seeing what else is out there kind of thing? Always in the back of my brain. I used to call it the jam plan. It's like Love one it. day. Love it. One day I'm going to go and get to, I'm going to be in the rehearsal room rather than around it. I'm going to sneeze again. Oh. Go for it. <laughs> <coughs> oh, there it is. 
Bless you. <laughs> Something's got my allergies going. Not COVID, I promise, because I get swabbed two or three times a week at the moment. So I know for a fact it's not COVID. All the listeners um, who are doing this via Zoom, we're not in the same room, don't worry. Oh, yeah, no, we'll cut that out. We'll cut that bit <laughs> out. Um, so, uh, yeah, always at the back of my mind, I had this, like, my jam plan is one day I'm going to be inside the rehearsal room rather than on the outside of the rehearsal room kind of looking in. Um, so relief management. Then I got my first my first job in on the production side was with a company called Fiery Angel, and this was life-changing, going and working for them. So when I joined them, there was, uh, I think it was, like, four people in the office. And then it was me. Um, so what were I, you doing there? I joined as assistant to the producers. So I was like the right-hand person to Ed and Marilyn, who were the producers. In just the most amazing human beings who had literally worked from the ground up to own their own company. And then at that point that I joined them, they had the, the 39 Steps running at the Criterion. Mm-hmm. And they'd won the Olivier for Best New Play. Um and I stayed with them for five years. I was there, started as assistants, and I used to walk. I used to walk their beautiful dog Tinsel. Um, if I, if they needed me to, I'd go and pick up the kids, or I'd like run errands for them. But then at the same time, I was also the person who was sending out emails on their behalf mm-hmm. and working with their correspondents. So it was like this huge learning curve of what it is to produce, and what better education than to have these two amazing producers teaching you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after. I think it was it was about a year, year and a half. I got promoted to production coordinator, and then from there, just had the most amazing time working in general management of shows, in house casting, um, on the uh, the origination of the the children's touring partnership symposium. Like being at that first meeting where all those venue artistic directors were around the table, going, "How do we tour ch- really high quality children's theatre?" Mm. And just like even being present at that meeting was like, I, I'm here at a moment when theatre is changing. That's incredible. Mm, this is a hinge moment, right? You, real hinge moment and understanding the power of quality theatre as well. And, and that's all down to Ed and Marilyn. They, were, they have been huge influences in my life. Um, absolutely massive. I, I owe them a tremendous amount. Mm. Um, I was with them for five years and I think we just put ghost stories into the West End and I uh, interviewed for the producer job at the Lyric Hammersmith, which was like, wow, I'm never going to get this job. It's the it's producer. Hmm. Like that's massive. It's not going to happen, but I got it. Um, and then, yeah, went and produced at the Lyric Hammersmith for nearly two years, which was when we produced the, we produced the Olivier nominated Bugsy Malone. Mm. which made a massive splash didn't it that, that must have been a nightmare though to produce because of all well well i don't know i'll ask a question was it a nightmare to produce because you had all these kids involved i imagine it, the paperwork was horrible oh the the paperwork is horrendous but for any uh, any involvement of young people in productions is just an absolute chuffing nightmare mm. um the paperwork and you constantly feel like you're doing something wrong <laughs> Like you, you're definitely not doing anything wrong, but you constantly feel like you're under scrutiny in some way. Mm. However, the payoff is that it was incredibly hard work and, you know, it was routinely 60 to 70 hour weeks. Wow. Um, 
But the thing is, when you're an in-house producer, you're salaried. So it's never like it's not on a commission basis. You can never earn more than what your fixed salary is. So whether I worked my standard like 44 hours or whether I worked 70 hours, I was being paid the same amount, which is arguably an issue within the arts industry. But anyway, um, but the, the divine pleasure of it was the people that we cast. We just had some absolutely extraordinary no across the board we had extraordinary cast members and a phenomenal creative team as well drew mcconey sean holmes phil bateman john borsa all of those creatives uh being involved was like this is magic that's being created and then to work with sir alan parker mm. like the director of fame the, the commitments uh it's a legend right Oh my goodness, just and just the most generous human being. Um, but I'd grown up with his films as well, so I I nearly died. <laughs> <laughs> like I walked into the rehearsal room that first day, and I think I'd been like collecting up um I had I was really fortunate that I feel like I had a really good relationship with all of the parents, but as a as a fault of that in some ways is like the parents spot you and they just like, Oh, so-and-so's forgotten their coat and their lunchbox and this. And so I walked into the rehearsal room, just like covered in coats and lunch <laughs> boxes. And it's like, who is this idiot that's walking in like some random tramp lady hermit. And it's like, Oh, that's the producer. And then you stand there next to Sir Alan Parker, <laughs> just mm. being like, I idolize you. I literally idolise. I've grown up with fame. I've grown up with Bugsy Malone. Grew up with Mississippi Burning. Like his films are astonishing, and it's just it's heartbreaking that we lost him this year. Mm. It's absolutely heartbreaking that we lost him. But then, what a legacy, and what um, there's there's an advocacy. I firmly believe that he has for working class as well. That. Uh, really taught me that as a as a person from the working class that you can be something more than what society tells you you're going to be mm. does that kind of make sense yeah no um, that's beautiful lovely um, so that was Bugsy and then uh once I'd worked as I say once I'd worked myself into a slightly more stable position paid off a bunch of my university debts and all that kind of stuff mm. um then I auditioned for Central and got in, thank goodness. Wow. So what, oh, can I come back to Bugsy a second? Mm. So, so, you know, you, so you said about the, the paperwork. So what, as, as a producer, mm. as a person who also loves theatre, what, what, what is your mindset? Are you trying to think, okay, I've got to keep on top of all, all these kids involved. It, you know, if anything goes wrong, you know, this, it can't go wrong. It can't go wrong. But stuff does go wrong unfortunately stuff does go wrong but you just you're, you're constantly trying to be in a position where you are being preemptive rather than reactive that was the thing that particularly myself and the head chaperone fantastic chap called Justin we constantly sort of said let's let's ensure we put as much in place that looks after everybody that makes everybody not just in a pastoral sense but also everybody knows where they're meant to be all the time and like parents feel really secure because the schedule is really like transparent um, that we're constantly communicating, hopefully in a really effective way to everybody. Um, but it's also that thing of like, if you do it right, 
the opportunities that might present themselves to these cast members in the future because this has gone right and you haven't put them off theatre for the rest of their lives and you have supported them and perhaps given them an opportunity where others might not have given them an opportunity is going to have a lasting effect kind of going forward Mm. and I I have a lot of respect for Sean Holmes the the director in particular because he's a great one for casting rather than the template rather than the expectation but instead he he's taught he sort of talked about it at the time that it was like you kind of see the soul of a person and if the soul of the person is right for the character that's the person you cast and it becomes irrespective of uh gender ethnicity of uh physique of age of any of those kinds of things because instead what you're going to is what the audience are going to relate to and that will be at the center of that person rather than what society has told you they should look like. Mm. Does that sort of make sense? Oh, yes, yeah, spot on. And I think it's something that, that is actually quite important now with, with um, you know, I'm talking a lot with these interviews mm. about um, with the Black Lives Matter movement and with the Me Too movement and the, the politics in theatre is now moving forward mm. and about, um, you know, like if it wasn't for Maxine Peake playing Hamlet, you know, women would now never play roles that they would never play. Do you know what I mean? But then the the thing, I think theatre is really quick to forget its own history. Like Sarah Bernhardt was playing Hamlet long before Maxine Peake was a twinkle in her parents' eye, Mm. you know? So it's not, it isn't anything new for gender blind casting, for example, to happen. It's just that theatre keeps forgetting and thinking that it's reinvented it which I find really amusing Mm. (laughs) because but you're right you're right in so many ways because Maxine Peake playing Hamlet in the way that she did did set forth um, doors to be opened for people to play other roles uh, in that same uh, irrespective of gender kind of casting Mm -hmm. but to credit it as being the first time or the first reinvention of it in theatre is like, well, you have you have too oft forgotten who has gone before you. Mm. But I think and- in, in recent history, though, I think it's like that because I think it's not that performance is branded as mm. the, the the. I know obviously it wasn't. Oh, it becomes it was- a touchstone. Yeah. Yeah. The checkpoint, as it were. Yeah, completely. Um, but I, I do think it is a fault of theatre that it forgets. It forgets its own history in that way. Mm. It's like, it, it's been done before. Yeah. But you forgot that we did it and you convinced yourself that we couldn't do it. And then it's had to be reinvented again. Mm. Whereas if theatre was just less, um, almost ephemeral with its memory, with its own history, then I, we'd be so much further forward by now, for goodness sake. Mm. But we're just having to reinvent ourselves all the bloody time because we keep forgetting that we've already done it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah, I, I want to touch upon, I want to come back to this point later on, if that's okay. Of course you can. Um, it's your podcast, babe. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, yeah, I'd, I'd love to come back to this point later because it, it relates to a point I want to talk about in a bit. Um, so sorry to cut you off. I'm really Ooh. sorry. Um, Harry, you need not apologise. Because I oft to forget to apologize to not apologize. I, I, I tried to use your own uh, back on me and it didn't work let's move on <laughs> cut that bit out <laughs> gone so you go to central yeah graduate what happens then 
Um, just as I was doing my final project, uh, the fun club with um, two of my favorite humans that I met on that course, Alistair McPhail and Sarah Page, uh, I applied for the McFutures, as you called it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not going to let that one go, are you? <laughs> really not, because it was absolutely hilarious. Uh, MGC Futures, which is the Michael Grandage Company Futures Bursary. And that year, they, the, they have a central bursary, which is like um, discipline specific. Mm-hmm. So I think like last year it was costume, I think. And it's had different ones, uh, but it's a relatively new scheme. And it's um, so Michael Grandage and his company are kind of paying back into the industry in a really fantastic way. Um, and I applied for that year. It was the assistant director bursary. So it meant that you would were awarded a pot of money and then you were assigned to the Mercury Colchester to do two productions. So the money effectively covered the Mercury Colchester having an assistant director. So they didn't pay you the bursary. And that's how uh, generally bursaries work for artists and why it becomes really important. A lot of venues apply for those bursaries too, so that they can then afford to engage people in roles that they wouldn't normally be able to afford to fill. Fantastic. Another issue within the arts, though, because really the arts should be able to afford to pay its people. There's a whole other argument that we'll get into uh, <laughs> a little bit later over the value of the arts and how the arts itself does not value itself. But anyway, we'll, um, come, back <laughs> we'll come back to that. So I was fortunate fortunate enough to win that bursary, um, which was just it was I think it was August, August of 2017. Um, so before I'd graduated, I already knew I was going into projects, which was so, oh my gosh, it was such a relief because this was the first point in my life that I was also going freelance. I'd never been freelance before. So I'm self-employed. I'd never, I'd always like bounced from salary to salary to salary. There'd never been a break. It had always been like, I only ever moved job if I knew I was going into the security of another job. Mm-hmm. So graduating meant that for the first time in my life I was going I don't have a job I I have no idea like I have no salary I I have no firm footing financially to go into which seems bonkers if I'd have only just got myself into a place of like financial security then gone off done an MA and just basically screwed myself (laughs) financially excellent um but winning the bursary meant that I had that security coming out of my MA which was great um and those two the two shows that I went on to was Spamalot which was a UK tour which was great fantastic experience and Turn of the Screw which was also a UK tour Hmm. and Spamalot was a remount and then uh Turn of the Screw was a brand new production so again being able to go through a remount rehearsal process and also go through uh, a brand new work rehearsal process is like invaluable as an education which did you find more and again this is probably something we're going to come back to as well but what did you find more invigorating as an assistant director was it something brand new was it a new piece of work or was it the fact that you know a spam lot it was it was coming back out again what did you find more Um, fun to work on I think well they both hold they both hold positives and negatives in a way. So when you're working on a remount, it's like the template's already there. The director already knows what they want the show to look like, how they want uh, characters to be performed, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, but the positives in that is that it's really fun finding ways of interpreting the original director in or, uh, direction in order that a new actor understands then what they're performing, if mm -hmm. that kind of makes sense. So they don't feel like they're just doing A to B, but they're going, oh, that's the intention and thought behind it all. Um, and I think as an assistant director and then later as an associate director, it becomes really important that you're able to communicate that. You become like a translator in some ways, I think. Um, whereas with new work, it's like total discovery, isn't it? It's trial and error and experimentation and it's play in a way that uh, you don't quite get to do with a remount. Not least because a remount is going to be a shorter rehearsal period more often than not. And then with a new work, you're going to have a slightly longer rehearsal period. But you're also you're going to have the opportunity where it's like that really works. That really doesn't work. Those kinds of uh, experimentations in the rehearsal room are really exciting. Mm. It's great. Um, well, I wasn't expecting an answer that in depth. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. no I, I next love time it. I'll love just it. be like, I much prefer a remount. Bye. <laughs> End of conversation. <laughs> Hang up the call. So that's, that's incredible. I want to talk about six, if I can. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, that little known show. Yeah. That little known show that no one's ever heard of. It's quite niche, you know. Uh, no, the, the amazing, the amazing terrific show that is six mm. um i mean when did you start to hear about now what okay don't punch me because i know that we've had hours of conversation about this so did you join as an associate or in a resident uh oh. capacity but Let's go slightly from the beginning then okay um, let's rewind rewind <laughs> the only way i knew about six was because i was working at the arts the arts theater okay of which we have mentioned. Yes. Um, and I got the job there just as I was starting my MA. This was the job that kind of, so working front of house at the arts helped me earn money. It like, <laughs> it helped me get through my MA. Um, and while I was ushering there, the, uh, the producers of six um, were doing four trial nights which was just like this crazy, brilliant experiment. I think it was Toxic Avenger we're in at the time, something like that. There was a, there was a long runner in, and but but only played like Tuesday through to Saturday, uh, Tuesday through to Sunday, and so Mondays were off. Mondays were dark at the theatre, and so the producers of Six were figuring out what it was. It had like its student run at Edinburgh, which had um, Toby Marlowe's sister played one of the roles. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact she played Catherine Howard I think um in that student run and then they had these four trial nights where they basically did like almost concert versions of the show but just trialed it in front of a paying audience mm -hmm. and then would have a week in between to work to figure out new stuff to play with it and then the next Monday come back do more stuff and it was like to me this is kind of like this revolutionary way of working how brilliant that you don't put your pressure on yourself to do like a four week run and try and sell it out. Instead, you literally do like work in progress showings, mm. like genius. So that was my first encounter with Six. Um, and I was also around while they were auditioning those original queens. So like Christina Modesto, uh, while I was working on the above bar. Mm -hmm. uh, way, back when. way back when, <laughs> uh, all in black, short sleeved <laughs> black shirt. We loved it, it was a look. Um, and then, and then it obviously just sort of ex 
exploded, didn't it? It had mm. a tour, then it went to Edinburgh or vice versa, what, took it up to Edinburgh and then did this tour to Norwich. And then it came back to London and came to the arts. And I was working on the box office. Um, and one day, uh, Lucy Court, who used to be the ticketing manager at the arts, sent me a link to a job advert for associate director on six. And I sent a really, really cheeky email with my CV that was basically something like, hey, Jamie and Lucy, the directors, who better to work on your show than the person who would know it best and is currently selling tickets for it? Wow. <laughs> wow. Please, please interview me. Um, I was really lucky to get an interview, which I think, I don't know this for definite. I've never really chatted to Lucy and Jamie about it at all, but I think was a courtesy more than anything. It was like, because I work at the arts and I worked on six front of house, it was like, we should, we should interview this person. Um, it was such a lovely interview. Uh, Lucy really complimented my hair, which at the time was uh, bleach blonde white with a little bit of mauve in it. Nice. Um, not that I was trying to look like the six marketing or anything. Um, nice little subtle hint. <laughs> crazy. Uh, and then, and then I, I got invited back, yeah, for a second interview with with Lucy and Jamie again, and with Kenny, the producer. Um, and luckily, they wanted two. They needed two associates, so I got one of the spots, and wow. that's it. That's what I've been working on six since June last year. Mm. And like you know, we said before we went live today. I remember you coming in I think you maybe you're taking over from me or you're taking over someone else I was on all day and you went I've got a great bit of news I need to tell someone <laughs> <laughs> and you were one of the first people I told I'm you were one of the first I yeah. love it so uh, let's talk about that because as someone who doesn't really know what mm. does and you know for, I, I like to think that the people well I don't like to think I know the people that are starting to listen to these podcasts are young people wanting to get into theatre um who maybe want to go into directing or backstage or wherever. So can you tell us what the job of an associate director actually entails? I'm really glad you asked this question because I don't think it's just people entering the industry. I think there's also a lot of confusion within the industry as to what assistant and associate directors do mm -hmm. and what indeed is the difference. Debunk the myth. Well, I'm going to try. That's for sure. <laughs> so, an assistant director, for example, is pretty much like does what it says on the tin. Like they are assistant directing. So they are assisting the director in them doing their job. And so whether that's doing research, whether that is, um, it can be sometimes go get me a coffee. Uh, <laughs> it can be um, go and run lines with some of the actors but you are essentially by the side of the director in the rehearsal room and you are under their instruction effectively. Mm -hmm. By the time, and this is the thing that sometimes I'm like, oh no, there is a difference between assistant and associate because I think you earn the position of associate and an associate is the person that is then able to direct by proxy. So it's, you will, as an associate, lead a rehearsal room. Whereas an, as an assistant, you would tend not to lead a rehearsal room. That would not be under your purview as, as an assistant. But as an associate, you're in a position of knowing the show so well 
and garnering all of that skill in knowing the show so well that you would then be in a position to lead the rehearsal room on behalf of the director. Mm -hmm. um, so an example of that would be for me learning six and then going and rehearsing in covers and alternates and swings and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. that the original directors are not there. It's me that does that in their place on their right. behalf and representing representing them. Mm -hmm. um, associates also travel with shows. So they will um, typically I'll go and do the in as I call it, which will be the first day in the venue. And particularly if the floor, the footprint uh, of the show expands or decreases depending on the size of the venue. So there'll be some adjustments that we need to do on that first day. I'll note the first show in. So particularly if we're playing to a much larger house compared to the venue to the week before. So spotting where I can help the performers to identify, you know, make sure you're shooting that up to the balcony. Let's get them involved in the audience as well. If it's a particularly deep auditorium as well, just giving them a view of what it's like to be in the audience watching them. Mm. But also if things have uh, slid a little bit and just need a little bit of tightening, if um, rogue lines have kind of slipped in and snipped those out, things like that. Um, and then as part of the tour responsibility as well, will be check-ins with the cast. Mm -hmm. So doing like little mini rehearsals just to tighten everything up again and make sure the cast are feeling really comfortable with what they're doing. Um, but then also rehearsing in alternates and swings and making sure they're ready to go on for their covers. Great. I mean, like I said, I think it's very important that, that the, differentiation, the differentiation, that's a mouthful, between, it is. <laughs> between, the, uh, between the jobs it's talked about. I wanna, uh, I'm fascinated by your job, as you know. I want to talk about um, aspects of your job about working with actors and about mm. how you and and also within that about if you have ever auditioned friends <laughs> <You're How> so... <laughs> you... what? what 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 a lead in what a lead in <laughs> are we seamless. okay to talk about that seamless yeah it's tough it's tough auditioning friends i i excuse you're myself you're a connected person aren't you so at some point <laughs> Well, no, you are, you are. So at, at some point, as you told me, someone's going to, you're going to be behind a date table and someone's going to walk in and you're going to go, ah, damn. I think there's a difference though, isn't there? There's, so um, you're very sweet in saying well-connected. I'm not well-connected. I'm terribly connected, but I have been around for a while. So do know of people or have like encountered them in different settings before. So there are, there are people that you, uh, know through association, know through doing your work, but then then there are times there are times when like your best friend, <laughs> your best friend is gonna is gonna walk into an audition room, or you're you're gonna see your best friend on the list of people that are being seen that day by you and the rest of the audition panel. And in those circumstances, I do excuse myself if it's if it's not a project that I'm leading as a director and I'm leading as an associate. And there are still people, you know, I'm not going to leave the panel empty, um, but, you know, you still have the casting director, you still have the MD, you might still have the choreographer. I will excuse myself um, because it's just so unfair on your mate, isn't it? Seeing mm -hmm. like your your best mate sat opposite you the, the night before you were talking about having a jippy tummy with, or, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And I think in all fairness, it's like you, you want your friends to do, 
their absolute best in front of people they don't know rather than their absolute worst in front of people they do know there you go there's the line there's the line I love it that's brilliant I do love um, it but yeah you do see familiar faces and it and but then that's the whole point isn't it sometimes of working in theatre is that you will know that some people will be brilliant at a role and you'll want to see them in the audition room and almost turn around to the rest of the audition panel and be like see they're brilliant this is a person we should have in the show hmm. um but yes yeah there you yeah. go well how, how about um working with actors how how do you go about because i you know, it's, it's no secret that you know you're you're been working on six for a long time now where you are leading the rehearsal room with new cast members how do you approach, say, the first couple of days, the first week? How how do you approach that, bringing brand new people into into something that has already got a template set out? Um, well, we have a sort of rough template of how the show gets rehearsed, if that sort of makes sense. We have mm-hmm. a process. Um, but I'm such a nerd. I'm just a big old geek. Never and would have so, <laughs> And so th- particularly the first day... I like to try and ensure that everybody in the room feels like they should be there. Because mm. I think that can be really hard in theatre. There's always a slight shadow of, oh, maybe I wasn't first choice. Or um, the person who's done this role before me is like uber famous on Instagram and has all these influencer like things going on. And then here I am about to try and rehearse for this role. And it can make the people feel like yeah maybe they shouldn't be there or that they are not as good as the people that have gone before so I tried (laughs) at pain to be like no you're all here for an absolute reason um and then I end up nerding out about the show and all the brilliant things about the show uh and why we're gonna have such an absolute blast rehearsing it in but it's also a tricky show to rehearse in. It tackles some really tough themes, tough mm. areas. Um, not least what happens with Catherine Howard. And as you say, as you mentioned earlier, the, the most recent Me Too movement. Um, in terms of the patriarchy and how these women were treated, even in that, in that time, the whole idea of, of reclaiming a narrative Mm. and us understanding that history has been written by rich white men and now we're at a place where we can we can delve and illuminate and find alternative narratives that are more often than not much more truthful Mm. and that a show like six screams exactly that there's a different story to tell it's not his story it's her story Mm. um and so it's hopefully offering an ownership to everybody in the room that that's what we're doing. Mm. Um, do you feel like do you feel like there's a what's the word? burden's not the word. Do you feel like there's a there's a, a weight or an expectation that that is the that's the finish line that you have to that I, I know what I want to say but I can't find the words. Do you feel like you have a that's it? Do you feel like you have a responsibility that you know, apart from getting the moves right and people standing in the right places and hitting the notes and that, that that's the goal of it at the end of the day. Is oh, it? there's a there, massive there responsibility, a, a huge responsibility. As an associate director, there is a huge responsibility to not fuck it up. Mm. Yeah, for absolutely sure. Um, I think we're really fortunate that our bosses are like Jamie Armitage, Lucy Moss, Toby Marlowe, Joe Baton, uh, 
Carrie Ann as well, the choreographer. We're so lucky that our bosses are people who absolutely understand that pressure that you are also feeling. And so they are massively supportive, hugely supportive, and also hugely, um, hugely warm in the information that they will share. I've not always been so lucky with the directors that I've worked with in that way. Mm. And they have, uh, at times the director has felt like they just close off and they're like, no, I'm not telling you the inner workings of that thing, even though it'll help you do your job better. Mm. Um, that it becomes a, a thing of almost territorial uh, and, and they can become really territorial with the cast as well. Whereas our six team is the absolute opposite. Um, it's totally built on this idea of complete openness and sharing. Um, like one of the lines of the show, well, uh, one of the lines from the show, welcome to the show. You are welcomed to the show when you work on it. And that's a complete gift. Being back in the rehearsal room these past couple of weeks. Um, so the first week I was uh, leading with introducing our new Seymour, Carly Mercedes Dyer, who is just extraordinary. Um, and then the second week, Jamie came and joined and then he takes over leading the rehearsal room, but he still has this enormous openness and warmth in sharing the working process. Mm. So we're working together in directing the room. It's not me kind of hid in a corner. It's, it's Jamie absolutely kind of going, and, and Franny, do you have anything else that you want to add into these notes? Or, or at times, brilliantly being modest enough to just turn around and go can I ask you a question can I check this thing let's check the thing in the script or let's check what's happened before and that is a real collaboration and it's it's beautiful I'm I feel incredibly fortunate to be in that position I won't say lucky because I've worked damn hard mm, you do work hard to get to a position, but I do think I'm fortunate to be experiencing the position and opportunity in that way. Mm. That's beautiful. It's a lovely way of, of, of looking at it. I want to, we're running out of time, which is really annoying. Um, oh, Harry. I want to ask, <laughs> that, well, what's that supposed to mean? You know, I can sit and talk to you for hours. I, I never, ever tire of, of talking to you at all. You're um, so sweet. Silly. Say it as I see it. <laughs> um, I want to. I want to just ask you two more things, if I can. Mm, of course. Um, and we touched upon something earlier on, and I want to get your opinion on on how you think your gender has affected your work. <laughs> because it's something that, that I, for some reason, the first four or five interviews I've done—that's a formal mm. word, chats. So I, I never asked, but then I thought, why? Why aren't I asking? It's an important question, and I think it should be addressed. About because there's some people I've spoken to who have just said, no, I'm just lucky, right place, right time. Other people will know because I am whoever I am, I've lost out on certain things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I want what, What's your opinion on the, in your line of work? How do you think your gender's affected where you are today? You don't have to answer it if you don't want to, obviously. That's really sweet of you um, it, uh, to put that caveat in to say that I, I don't have to answer. I think um, I'm a place in my life where I am just figuring out exactly what the legacy of my own gender has been and at what points uh, my gender has played against me or has um, afforded me an opportunity that perhaps 
somebody of an opposite gender or a different gender uh, would not have had. And I think um, the really tricky thing has been acknowledging, particularly with the Me, the, the Me Too movement, was a time of really acknowledging that there are so many different ways in which gender can be oppressed or gender can be abused or um, there is a violation of you because of your gender. And the absolute kind of the most vivid, tangible versions of this are uh, sexual acts of violence but what you also have is the underlying acts of uh, verbal violence, of psychological violence, that I think particularly female identifying and absolutely trans people are facing to a degree that male identifying as cisgendered males do not yet understand fully. Um, I think it would be incredibly rare, although not that it would never happen perhaps, but it would be rare for you to find perhaps a cisgendered uh, male who has been sat next to an old man and told to smile pretty and let them touch their leg because then that old man might financially support something. Um, I think the, uh, I there was, it was only a couple of years ago I remembered this, but there, I used to work in a pub back home and the landlord was this really, really handsy person. And I was, it was the end of the shift and they were it was closing up and all the punters had gone and I was just doing the toilet. So I'd done the female toilets and I was in the male toilets refilling like tissue paper and all that stuff. And he came in and started trying to hug me and kiss me. And me, I was like 18 at the time. And so I'm there like, oh, no, I don't. Like, uh. And like the 18-year-old the version of Franny was like, oh, I can't be mean to him because I'll lose my job. Mm. And I need this job. Uh, but also the 18-year-old version of me is also kind of going, but this is how men are. If they have an opportunity, they will just grab you. They will just... and. And I remember, I remember him kind of pulling away from me and going, don't take it so seriously. Like, it's, it's not that big a deal. I was only joking. I was only messing around. And it was only kind of like years later, you start to remember these instances and where you do just, you, put, you, you brush them off as being like, well, that's how men are. That's, that's just a thing. That's just how life is. Um, but what you, you actually begin to realise is then that like from that moment I had a really difficult relationship with men and was quite scared of them and never wanted to be left alone with a man irrespective of who they were whether they were in my family or out of my family or I just met them I just didn't want to be around them um and then I think that also sort of marries then into my own kind of discoveries of my own sexuality as, as somebody who identifies as asexual uh, as somebody who also identifies as a tomboy so she they and all of those kinds of things and I think so I suppose <laughs> very long answer to a short question no, I'm still I'm still figuring out how my gender has affected the path of my life hmm. 
that's it's I applaud and admire you telling that story I, I and, and opening up I think it's an interesting thing to talk about with with the way that the industry is going I think it's important um so thank you it's a very honest answer I want to close if I can of course with what you think theater is for great question I am going to steal quite outrageously from um, a brilliant artist, Kay Tempest, uh, who has spoken so often and their new book actually on connection is exactly about this thing, um, which is I think theatre is to the purpose of teaching empathy. Oh, wow. I was not expecting that. <laughs> But I have completely stolen it. So not not my original thought. I But that speaks most truthfully to me as the purpose of theatre. It is in the teaching of empathy. Go on. I think I know what you're talking about, but just in case of other... I think I know what you're talking about, but please continue. Well, that's, that's where we learn, isn't it? Is how to be empathetic. And it teaches it in the most exacting way. And whether you're watching whether you're watching a pantomime, whether you're watching a musical, whether you're watching a play, whether you're watching spoken word, whichever performative act you're watching, it will, in its own way, be adding to your learning of empathy, of understanding how other people think and feel and process and uh, operate within society. Um, and therefore there's an opportunity like the, the the people that are part of the act the people who are watching the act the people who are working around the act everybody is going to be touched by that learning um so yeah that's that to me is the the purpose of theater live performance that's nice short simple but yet quite um but it says it all you said it all uh, was it again something for empathy what was it again the uh... <laughs> I've, I can I can't remember the exact words you said. What was it again? Ah, uh, you'll have to play it back. You'll oh, have to go. <laughs> oh, something about empathy. I can't remember. You stole the quote once. You can steal it again. I'm sure you can. I don't. I don't know if the, the, what I remember. The, my first encounter of it was when Kay was still known as Kate Tempest, and so there's a there's a brilliant Guardian Guardian article when they interviewed her, her at that time. She identified as her and is now identified, her pronouns are they, them. Um, and when the interviewer, I just remember them repeating the word empathy, 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 like performance is empathy, empathy, empathy. It's what more could you want from art than to learn how other people feel? Mm -hmm. Like how else does it, how else does the community work if you if you don't understand how other people are feeling within that community? All right. So mm. yeah, I that that's the one bit I remember from this Guardian article. Typical lefty me reading the Guardian, um, <laughs> and then uh, the the book release uh, is just within this last last month. Uh, it's a really short book and it's an essay um, that's responding to lockdown and the idea of uh, the importance of creativity and how it, the potential of it has been 
devalued but in actual fact we need to hold it in its rightful place for how important it is that we that we understand what it is to be human mm. um brilliant it's a brilliant book um, yeah I'll, i'm gonna look into it now fran and i'll call you franny annie i'm gonna call you franny annie thank you <laughs> thank you very much for chatting to me this has been terrific thank you oh a total pleasure harry thank you so much for asking me it's been great i'll speak to you soon yeah yeah, thank you.